Uh, good morning to everybody. Uh, I'm glad to have you on. I didn't look and see if we had any guests, but if we have any guests or visitors uh, on our call this morning, uh, we're really excited to have you uh, joining us. And I hope everyone's doing well despite the circumstances. Uh, for those of y'all that um, were at the water distribution uh, with me yesterday, you will notice that I am wearing the same shirt I was yesterday. So uh, I'm running low on clothes. We're going to have to go do a, a, a clothes collection at our house a little bit later today. Uh, and, and I'm glad that Zoom doesn't have the capability of smell-o-vision uh, because let's just say we're conserving a lot of water over here, as I'm sure some of y'all are as well. So uh, anyway, we're, we're going to make it. So I hope you guys are doing well. This is a great, great passage this morning, and I hope it'll be uh, just a a breath of fresh air that will really refresh your souls, your hearts, your minds as we consider what this passage has for us today. I do want to look back and say that last week, Chris did an amazing job uh, unpacking the end of Hebrews chapter 2, and in it, he called Jesus our ultimate hero, and I think that's so appropriate uh, given his passage as well as our passage today. And really, that idea of Jesus being the ultimate hero is a great lead-in for today's passage because today's passage has a lot to do with Moses, who, as, as many of y'all know just from what you read in the Bible, Moses was the undisputed heavyweight hero for the Hebrew people, uh, especially in first century context. Uh, and so this, this uh, letter that was written for exhortation to exalt Christ in order to exhort Christians, written to probably primarily Jewish background believers, uh, the author wants to address Moses, okay? But we need to remember two things as we go into this. First of all, the author never belittles Moses. He never speaks down about Moses or, or in a derogatory way. He could have gone back and, and found uh, ample evidence of, of mistakes that were made by Moses, etc. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, he didn't enter the promised land, remember? But, but the author doesn't do that. He doesn't belittle Moses in that way. Second, this passage is on the front end of a larger section stretching to all the way to nearly the end of chapter 4. So this is really a, a significant two chapters worth of material. And, and when you're studying a, a passage in a book of the Bible... There's a near context that you have to pay attention to. And then there's the context of the, of the structure of the book as a whole that you have to pay attention to. And so one of the things that we need to pay attention to as we look at this is that it's connected to what comes after, okay? And, and if we spend too much time focusing on Moses and Christ's superior, superiority to Moses, sometimes that obscures uh, some of the main points that are going to be put forward both in our passage today and in the rest of the material that we're going to be looking at in chapters 3 and 4 over the next couple weeks uh, that Kevin and I are going to be uh, preaching on. So, yes, we need to talk about Moses today, but that's not all we're going to talk about today uh, as we look at how this six verses at the beginning of chapter 3 really leads into the rest of the exhortation, the rest of the encouragement and warning that we're going to see in chapters 3 and 4. So we're going to try and keep that in context as we go ahead in the next couple weeks. Uh, today's passage, you, you need to know this, is also really tightly connected to chapters 1 and 2 by certain words, certain phrases, and we're going to look at those this morning. And I'm going to show you some examples of how the author ties what he's saying in chapter 3 back into especially the latter half of chapter 2 that Chris preached on. So 
Uh, if you don't already have them open, open your Bibles, open a Bible app. I want you to look at these. There are some interpretive issues uh, that we're going to talk a little bit about in terms of how different translations word some of these verses. And that that's true anytime you're translating into a different language. You're going to have different people take different approaches to how it's translated. But hopefully we'll, we'll walk away with a clearer understanding of this passage, okay? Uh, one of the major points of the passage is I'll just kind of throw out there from the very get-go, that we blow past too often when we want to get to Moses and some of the things he says later on, is that we are called in the very first verse to consider Jesus. We're called to consider Jesus. And think about that. Think about what we consider day in and day out. What are the considerations that are constantly uh, impacting uh, our thoughts and what we're captivated by and what we focus on? Uh, most of us lately have been considering a whole host of things besides Jesus and our relationship with Christ. I mean, think about just the urgent things that come up. How long can yogurt last in a refrigerator that's lost power? All right. The, this is what I've been considering. Okay. Uh, how bad could it possibly be to drink unboiled water during a boil alert in Austin? Like, th that's what I'm considering. That's what I'm Googling, right, to figure out how. Now that we have YouTube, do I really need to call a plumber if I hear a leaking in my wall? You know, why can't I just uh, knock out that with my DIY self with a YouTube video? These are some of the things that we're considering, okay? And, and these aren't bad things to consider. There's all sorts of considerations that are going to come on our radar each and every day. But when you add up all these innumerable daily considerations, it, it really leaves little time, if we're not careful, for considering Jesus. Go back to Stephen Covey. Uh, you know, the big rocks and the small rocks. If we try and fill up the jar with all these little rocks first, you're not going to fit any of the big rocks in there. And the biggest rock of all is Jesus Christ and our relationship with him, who he is, what he's done, who we are in Christ, okay? According to our passage, Jesus is the most important subject for consideration. And that's true each and every day from now on into eternity. And the Greek term translated consider, it may show up differently depending on your translation, but consider or fix your eyes on, it doesn't mean a casual consideration. It means to apply one's mind diligently to something. It takes effort. It expresses attention and, and continuous observation. It's not a, a casual glance at something. And so this section of, of exhortation, and again, that's just a big fancy word for pastoral encouragement and, and warning, this section of exhortation doesn't seem to be addressing to the original audience an inappropriate exaltation of Moses over Christ. That doesn't seem to be the main point here, as I mentioned earlier. Now, is, is, is Christ represented as superior to Moses? You betcha. But, but what really seems to, to be um, the issue here, as one scholar put it, is the refusal to hear and obey God who has spoken with finality through his son Jesus. That's what the readers are struggling with based on this and the rest of chapters 3 and 4. It's this refusal to hear and obey God. It's, it's not giving due attention to Jesus Christ through whom God has spoken finally and ultimately. In fact, the previous uh, exhortation that was back at the beginning of chapter 2, you remember uh, in chapter 2, the first warning passage we see, it spoke similarly. The author says, pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. Uh, 
this great good news that we've heard from Jesus Christ and his apostles through them from God. Pay more careful attention back in chapter 2. Now it's saying consider Jesus. In other words, when we fail to fix our eyes on Jesus, we stop paying attention to all that God has revealed through Jesus. We don't just stop considering him. We stop considering the gospel. Everything in and around his person and work, it falls out of focus in our life. We turn away from the truth of the gospel, this good news about who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do, has promised to do in the future. And the result will always be a lack of hope and confidence in Christ because Christ, folks, is our hope. He is our confidence before God. But listen to me, and this is the big idea to walk away with today. If we keep our eyes on Christ, we will become more and more Christ-like. By considering who he is, we will better understand who we already are as followers of Jesus Christ and how we ought to be as followers of Jesus Christ. And as we grow up in, I believe it was Paul that put it like this, in the knowledge and grace of our Lord, our our confidence and our hope in him will develop and deepen over the course of our lives. Let me put it a different way. Our understanding that he is our confidence before God and that he is our hope, both now and forevermore, our understanding of that will deepen and resonate more deeply in our lives. So first, we, we must consider who Christ is. Our passage tells us that he is Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful as a son over God's house, and who has been counted as more worthy of glory than Moses. These are all things that our passage is telling us about Jesus. In verse 1, I mean, there's a lot to consider in verse 1, folks. And these are the types of verses that I blow past. And, and, and you've, got to, you've got to camp out on these verses and just, just get every little bit out of them that you can. Every word has significance and meaning. But we find a lot to consider in verse 1 about specifically the person and work of Christ. So let's for a moment apply our minds diligently to these revelations in chapter 1. So first of all, consider Jesus, the name Jesus. It's, it's the human name chosen by God. Remember the angel, name him Jesus. It's the human name chosen by God for the Son of God who took on flesh when he came to the earth to save us from sin and death. And consider the fact that Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua or uh, Yehoshua. Uh, which basically means Jehovah or Yahweh is salvation. So it speaks to Jesus as our Savior, as the one through whom God saves us. And the first time we see his name is back in chapter 2, verse 9, where the author says, remember he's talking about like, why is everything so jacked up and messed up? Why why don't we see how uh, the psalm speaks about the world? Why is it all messed up? And remember he says this, he says, but... We do see him, Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. And he he names him. He says, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus. Consider that Jesus is the apostle. Look, Look at that with me. This is the only time in the New Testament 
that Jesus is referred to with this particular title. It literally means apostle, right? It literally means one sent with orders. We think about the 12 apostles and others that are called apostles uh, because they're sent in the New Testament. But it's, it's literally one sent with orders. In other words, it's, it's a messenger, a delegate, an ambassador. That's one of my favorite ways to look at it. Who is given full authority to represent the one that is sending them. It's like they have durable power of attorney for the one who sends them. And one scholar sums it up by saying that Jesus was sent by God the Father with authority to speak for God and represent God to mankind. So even though Jesus is called the apostle only one time with that, you know, that title, specific title, the pages of the New Testament are, are filled with language which speaks to the fact that, that Jesus was sent from God, from heaven, to reveal and to represent God to humankind. Consider just the first two chapters of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 2, Hebrews 2 verse 3. Hebrews 1 verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. God has spoken to us, not through prophets, but in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In other words, he sent his son to be the final word. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. In other words, Jesus was sent to be the first one to speak the good news, the fulfillment of God's promises in himself, in and through his person work. He was sent to speak that and then on through the apostles, you know, through the church, etc. All right, consider that Jesus is also not just the apostle, but what, is, what, is, what else is he called right there in the context? He's also the high priest of our confession, that which we confess. I, I think you can look at that as the content of our, of our Christian beliefs, what we say we believe, I think is probably an appropriate way to look at that. So he's the high priest of our confession. Guys, chapters 5 through 10, we're going to spend a lot of time in those. And those are some of the most difficult for us because we don't have a, a, a first century Jewish background in our understanding of the Old Testament in particular. But chapters 5 through 10, we are going to dig down deep into this idea about the priesthood of Christ, okay? So I'm not going to speak a lot about that today, but we see this title used for Jesus over and over again in Hebrews. I mean, just look back at chapters 1 and 2 again. Chapter uh, 1, verse 3, And he is the radiance, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. Now look at this. Speaks to his priesthood. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down. He's a priest that's not constantly moving to and fro, doing multiple sacrifices. When he had made purification of sins through his blood, his self-sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high in the holy of holies in the heavenly tabernacle after which the earthly tabernacle and later the temple was, was a, a symbol of, really, uh, a model of. And he sat down there at the right hand of God. And then look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And really, that whole section that, that leads up to this. Uh, the author says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in all things, so that he, Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, it's, it's, he is our high priest. And we'll get more of that in chapters 5 through 10. Uh, an apostle, think of it like this. An apostle is sent from God to reveal and to represent God to humankind. Okay, uh, But a high priest is sent by the people on behalf of the people to represent the people to God in the presentation of their sacrifices and offerings. So under the old covenant, under the law, this old covenant between God and and Israel, through Israel to the rest of the world, Moses and Aaron were essentially the apostle and the high priest of that old covenant. Remember, and Moses was sometimes referred to as a high priest as well, but really Aaron was the one consecrated, anointed for the, the high priesthood. And then uh, uh, Moses was sent by God to reveal God to Israel. Remember at the burning bush, he says, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you. You're you're going to be an apostle in that sense. And he revealed God to Israel and to Egypt, uh, most explicitly through the plagues. And he is the one through whom Israel received the law. He's basically like the midwife that birthed the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into the Promised Land. So clearly he was sent by God to reveal God and to represent God to the people. Um, And ultimately the law itself that came through Moses reveals to us God's character and holiness. Have you ever thought about that? That all those statutes and ordinances and the Ten Commandments itself, these speak to God's character and his holiness. In other words, they reveal God to humankind, his what he's like, what his expectations are. But in the new covenant that that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to, that now we get to partake of, in this new covenant that's established through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has himself become both the apostle and the high priest. Jesus has taken on the roles of both Moses and Aaron in his apostleship and high priesthood. Okay, finally, consider that Jesus is the one greater than Moses. And look with me at verses 2 through the first part of verse 6. And I'll just read it quickly. It says, He, Jesus, was faithful to him, God, who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. I think that is a reference to God's house, given the Old Testament background. So, as Moses also was in all God's house. For he has been counted, that's Jesus, has been counted worthy by God of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. The person that the architect and builder of the house gets much more honor than the house that they build. Okay? And then verse 4 For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, in all God's house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over God's house, over his house. So in verse 2, Jesus' faithfulness to God is likened to Moses' faithfulness. And again, he could have easily drawn the, the contrast and said, Jesus is faithful, Moses was not as faithful, right? But instead, he looks to the incredible faithfulness of Moses, 
But then he puts, elevates Jesus even above the faithfulness of Moses, okay? He's likened to that same amount of faithfulness to God. And, and these verses, just so you know, the, the, the Old Testament backdrop that these are quoting from is from the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 7. It's, it's, um, it's when Moses' siblings, Aaron and Miriam, get jealous of Moses and they begin to turn against their brother. They begin to discredit him in a sense. So God calls um, <laughs> Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Can, can you imagine that? Like God calls you and you know, you're disputing with his apostle, the one he sent, and, and you're quibbling about stuff with him. And God says, uh, I need to speak to you for a minute. So he calls Aaron, Moses' older brother, and Miriam, their sister, and Moses. And he says, come into the tabernacle. Come into the tent of meeting. I've got some things I need to clear up about uh, Moses' relationship with me, God, and then how that should affect your relationship with Moses as my delegate with full authority that I've given him. And so God tells them, that he uniquely speaks. He doesn't speak to Moses like other prophets in dreams and visions that are hard to understand. He, he uniquely speaks to Moses face to face. Literally, it's mouth to mouth. He speaks to him that way. He, he calls Moses his servant in that passage in Numbers. And he says that he is faithful as God's servant in all God's household. In, in verses 2 and 3, that term house is a is a it's a key term in this passage. It shows up, I think, six times in five verses. But it, it becomes a context, this idea of house, becomes a context for comparing Jesus and Moses. And there's some wordplay going on too. And it's a little bit tricky to tease out just what is meant by house in this passage. Because it can mean a structure, literally a house. Uh, specifically, it can refer to God's house, the tabernacle, later on the temple. Um, it can refer to a household or a family or by extension, a community of people like, for instance, the people of God or even a nation it can refer to. So in, in verses three and four, if you'll look at that with me, the use of the term that gets translated as builder kind of clues us in. It seems to suggest that the author has a structure in mind, at least for those verses. Okay. And, and as a builder of a house has more honor than the house he builds, which we mentioned, Jesus has now been counted worthy of more glory, more honor than Moses has. And again, they highly esteemed Moses. And these verses seem to suggest an association between Jesus and God in the building of the house. Some say that the builder referred to is Jesus. The one who built God's house is Jesus, but then it refers to God building all things. So at the very least, there's a, there's a connection made, much like in chapter 1, where the creation of the universe, the creation of all things, is credited in some sense to both God and Jesus, working together, Jesus as his delegate in creation, the one through whom everything was created. And you see some of that here. And, and even though verses 3 and 4 may have this house structure in mind, uh, it, it certainly includes the idea of the community of God's people, okay? In other words, God's household. Moses was faithful in both the community of Israel and in the actual structure at the center of Israel, which was the tabernacle, 
the tent of meeting, later on the, the temple structure, okay? So he was faithful in both contexts, and, and, and that was the epicenter of God's presence among his people. You remember, that's where his presence came to rest, was, was in, on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And Moses was faithful in his creating, I mean, he built the tabernacle according to God's specifications. Uh, the things he did like that in constructing the tabernacle. Remember how specific God is in his instructions to Moses in the Old Testament about how to build the tabernacle? Remember back in Exodus? All the specificity, and we our, our eyes roll back in our head and glaze over. But, but there's, a, there's a reason for that specificity. And part of that reason is to show that Moses was absolutely faithful in carrying out God's specifications. And in doing so, and in the things that Moses spoke, and in the law that came through Moses, uh, we see this phrase in our passage. It says that Moses provided a testimony of those uh, things which were to be spoken later. In other words, his ministry as a faithful servant in God's house looked forward to ultimate fulfillment through Jesus Christ and the person and work of Christ. So while Moses on the one hand, was a faithful servant in God's house. And please, again, every word is so important here. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Jesus would be faithful in an even more important capacity, an even more important role with even more important responsibilities as the son, not in God's house, but over God's house. Servant, son, in, over. Okay, we're meant to see that, that, that contrast there. And it's, it's debated what exactly is referred to by Jesus' faithfulness, whether it had to do with uh, you know, his obedience in his earthly ministry despite suffering, uh, obedience unto death uh, on the cross. It, it, some people think it refers to his current high priestly ministry uh, in, the, in the heavenly tabernacle uh, before God. Uh, and, and maybe it can, it can cover both aspects of Jesus' faithfulness because Jesus was faithful and folks, Jesus is faithful. And might I also add, Jesus will always be faithful and you can count on that. We have to count on that. So as we consider Jesus, we must reckon with his role as the apostle and high priest of our confession whose person and work was anticipated by all that Moses did and said under the old covenant. And folks, that sort of reflection on Jesus, it, it will nourish our souls if we will only consider it. Just consider the difference between Jesus and the Son over God's house uh, and then Moses as a servant in God's house. Uh, imagine you were to go to the White House to take a tour. Uh, a knowledgeable tour guide meets you at the security checkpoint and walks you around telling you all about the White House and showing you many cool things, but definitely not showing you everything, okay? There's doors you don't go into, all right? Eventually, the tour comes to an end, and you have to leave the, the grounds. You have to leave the premises and go home, okay? Now imagine that your brother or sister has been elected as president and now lives in the White House. When you get to the perimeter this time, your sibling, the president of the United States, comes out to meet you and shows you every nook and cranny, everything there is to see, and then 
tells you that you've been invited as his or her sibling to come and live with them at the White House as well, and that you've been given a position of authority on the president's cabinet to help administer government. Just think about the difference between those two uh, interactions, those two experiences, in a small way, very small way, that speaks to the difference between Moses and Jesus. Moses was indeed faithful, folks. The author wants us to know that. But his role as a servant in God's house meant that he had a limited revelation of and could only provide limited access to God. But Jesus is the faithful son over God's house. He is the eternally begotten son of God who is God himself. And he provides us with complete and final and ultimate revelation of and total unfettered access to God. That we can stand before God in the very holy of holies in the heavenly tabernacle and expect to find grace and mercy in our times of need. That is fantastic. Just consider that for a moment. For longer than a moment, I hope. And the application for today is it's baked into the passage itself. We must consider Jesus. We, we must apply our minds diligently to the person and work of Christ, the truth of the gospel. We must give him our full attention and constant observation. And one way to do this is simply to read and study and memorize and meditate upon Scripture. And the easiest way to do this, folks, at least at Wayside right now, is to simply do the Hebrew study that we're going through in our men's and women's groups. Read the passages, work on the questions, have the conversations, pray about it. Uh, read and study and meditate on those passages each day of the week. Look for verses that resonate, that, that you can put to memory so that you can consider them and mull them over throughout the day. Draw up a bath. I love this metaphor. Draw up a bath of God's revelation of, of Scripture about the person and work of Jesus Christ. But don't just look at it. Get in it and soak in it. And, and let those truths about who Jesus is and what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do, saturate your thoughts, your mind, your heart, your soul. The more we understand about Christ, the more we will understand ourselves as his people. And that's where we're heading next. So the second part that I want to point out here, and this will go a little quicker. Um, consider who, not who we are in Christ in, in terms of who we will be, because we will be glorified with him someday. But just think, consider who we already are in Christ. Apply your minds diligently to that. Look at the exhortations that we see at the beginning and at the end of our passage in, in verse 1 and verse 6. Hebrews 3, 1 and 6 it starts out, therefore, holy brethren, holy brothers and sisters, partakers, sharers of a heavenly calling. And then it says, consider Jesus. And then in verse 6, it says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house. And then look at what it says here. Whose house we are. Whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Uh, I'm not going to go into that uh, last statement because we're going to look at that over the coming weeks, but just short little thing to say about that. I do not believe that a person who has bowed the knee to Christ, who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, been grafted into the body of Christ, 
been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, baptized into the body of Christ, I don't think that such a person can lose their salvation. So we're going to talk more about what that actually means in next week and the week following. But I just want to point that out because I know a lot of y'all are probably wondering about that verse. I do not think that speaks to loss of salvation. But here's the one thing I want to focus on. Whose house we are. Present tense. So consider, first of all, and from verse 1, consider that we are holy in Christ. What does that mean? Is that just a church word? We don't think about that a lot. This means that we are special, that we are set apart, that we are separated out for God's holy purposes to serve God in unique ways. Hebrews 2.11 speaks of the work of Christ in this way. Hebrews 2.11 says, For both he who sanctifies, same word group, he who makes holy, and those who are sanctified, those who are made holy, set apart, are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, brothers and sisters. And that leads us to our next point to consider. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. The eternally begotten Son of God became a human being, a man, through the incarnation, through the virgin birth. He became a man so that we could become his brothers and sisters, adopted sons and daughters of God, members of God's family, God's household. And we saw this back in chapter 211, and we also see it in 217. Uh, Look at 2.17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he could become our merciful and faithful high priest. Now consider that we're, what does it say in verse 1? Partakers of a heavenly calling. Consider that. What that means. What that entails. This could refer to the fact that our calling, that origin is in heaven with God, that we are called from God in heaven. It could speak to our destination, our ultimate purpose of of being with God, that it leads to God, this heavenly calling. Uh, Really, it it could refer uh, in some sense to both. But if you look at the context of Hebrews, it could refer to that great salvation that we can't afford to miss out on back in chapter 2, verse 3, or the glorious destiny to be crowned with glory and honor alongside Christ, that glorious destiny for Christians that we see in chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. And then finally, consider that we are God's household. And we see hints of this in the, in the family-oriented language of chapters 2 and 3. By the way, did you know that that's the most common metaphor for, for the church in the New Testament? Is family. And every time you see brothers and sisters, it speaks to that idea that we are family in Christ. We're of God's family. So we see all this language, children, brethren, etc. But we see an amazingly explicit statement of our relationship with God and Jesus in, in verse 6, the second half. As Christians, we are, we are God's house or God's household. We are indwelt by God and we have corporately become his temple, a a spiritual house as we see in the New Testament in Peter and Paul. We've become a spiritual house. We are living stones on the cornerstone, on the foundation of Christ being built up for this spiritual house for God. We are also a community of his people. We are God's people. We're his family. 
And that has the privilege of total access to God himself through the eternal, never-ending, everlasting ministry of Jesus Christ, the high priest of our confession. And if by God's grace, these truths about who we are in Christ would sink down into our souls, then we, how could we not hold tightly to our confidence that we have in Christ? How, in other words, how can we not hold tightly to Christ, who is our confidence before God? Who is himself the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and is doing for us? How could we not hold firmly to the hope that we have in Jesus? To Jesus as our hope, as we sing, our living hope for today and for the rest of eternity. Considering Christ helps us better understand who we already are in Christ and how we ought to live in light of that truth. All right, let's have some fun here. Kids, uh, I probably should have chosen Frozen for this illustration given the last week and a half, but maybe I was thinking warm South Pacific thoughts, but my kids love the movie Moana, all right? I can't see you raising your hands, but if you love Moana, say, I love Moana. Children and adults alike. Great. I'm sure somebody said it, right? It's a good movie, all right? It's... it's. Uh, I like it. Um, it, but there's this great scene at the end of the movie when Moana approaches the, the lava monster, okay? And she sings this song, and I teared up when I heard it. She sings it not in the context of Christian faith or anything like that, okay, that's fine, but, but listen to the words. And they, these words were transformative for the lava monster, and I don't want to give away too much, um, but she says this as she's walking towards this monster. She says, I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you. But this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. Folks, Jesus Christ, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, crossed way more than the horizon to find us and to save us. He crossed... How great the chasm that lies between us that we sang about. He crossed that chasm. He came into our world. He came into our our humanity. He went to death and separation from God the Father on our behalf. He he did that to find us and to save us and to speak these words into our souls. He, He took on humanity to redeem us from sin and death, from the monsters in the monstrous world that we had become. He alone knows our name, our new name, our new identity, which we receive in accordance with his faithfulness, his work as the son over God's house. Knowing who we are can only come through a knowledge of him. I want to repeat that. And kids, I want you to listen to this and I want you to believe this for the rest of your life. Knowing who we are doesn't come from deep down inside us. It doesn't come from out there. It doesn't come from nature. It comes from knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how we know who we are is through our knowledge of him and what he says about us. And that will lead to, I promise you, transformed lives of enduring hope and undiminished confidence in Christ for the rest of our lives and on into eternity. So are you struggling with your confidence before God, this access to God? Are you 
thinking you're, you're, you're much too pathetic or weak or sinful or dirty or something to, to stand before God with confidence, not in yourself, but in Christ. Maybe that's because we're trying too hard to be confident in and of ourselves. Rather than finding our confidence through Christ, through who he is and, and what he has done and what he is doing day in and day out for the rest of eternity as our faithful high priest. We can never stand before God confident in ourselves. We can only stand before God with confidence in Christ, in our daily dependence upon Christ. That's where our confidence originates from. Are you struggling to remain hopeful? Guys, this has been a hard year, a hard week. Uh, There's been a lot of hard, okay? I, I get that. And I feel you on that, okay? But are you struggling to be hopeful? Are you confused about what to be hopeful about? Perhaps we're hoping in hope itself, that we've got this wishy-washy hope where we just hope and hope itself and hope that cross our fingers and hope it all turns out okay. Or maybe we're hoping in something that's unworthy of our trust, something fleeting, something failing, something earthly, whether it's ourselves or somebody else or some circumstance, rather than hoping in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Only in Christ can we find hope for this life and for all eternity. Please don't forget that. So consider Jesus, church. Consider the fact that he came to the earth to provide you, to provide me, to provide all of us with forgiveness and eternal life through his self-sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave and his current ministry at the right hand of God the Father. Consider the fact that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, has made you, if you believe in him, holy brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling. He's made you the household of God. I was going to end with two scholarly quotes. I had them all queued up about the faithfulness of Christ and our call to faithfulness in Christ that we're going to look at in the coming weeks. But you know, at the last minute, I decided to stick with Moana, okay? So again, kids, I hope you enjoy this, but I've got a couple of Moana quotes for you. And by the way, they're taken completely out of context. Don't do this with scripture, but it's okay to do this with Disney quotes, okay? I'm fine with you butchering the context of a Disney quote. Don't do that to the Bible, okay? But I like these quotes because I think it speaks to what we're talking about. Uh, They serve well the context of of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Moana says this. She says, when I saw you, that's when it all changed. And then she also says at a different point in the movie, come what may, I know the way. Church, when we see and consider Jesus for who he is and for what he has done and for what he is doing right now, we will be changed. And as was true for the original readers of Hebrews and for us as well, whatever comes our way in this life on this earth, we can remain hopeful and confident in the one who is himself the way and the truth and the life. Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Next week, we're going to lean into the rest of this section on faithfulness by looking at how the inspired author is going to make use of part of Psalm 95. And it's great. And it's going to thread through the rest of this section. So I hope you can join us next week for 
the, 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 the next installment of Hebrews 3, and we get to do it in person if you can make it. And if not, we'll make sure you have access to the worship service as well. All right. I love you guys. Let me pray for us.